Good morning as we worship our great God. And uh, thank the Lord that we can be here and we didn't get uh, snowed out where the uh, the roads wouldn't be be able to be traveled today the way that it snowed yesterday, at least out at our house and south of us. We got uh, like seven inches out there and you guys got like a couple inches here that live in town. So anyway, the ones who could make it here today, thank you for coming out. It's great to be able to worship with you. We are in... Uh, Actually, the start of 1 Corinthians 13, we covered the last uh, last week. We covered the first three verses, and uh, we have before us, as we start in verse four today, we have before us a diamond, and it's a diamond that is well known in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. People know about it. It has so many dazzling, amazing facets in there. Matter of fact, there are 15 of them in this beautiful diamond. And it gives a full description of love, at least as full as we can get in one passage. It's a, each facet there out of this diamond is a property, a characteristic of what love is. So as we examine this, we don't want to get so technical that it becomes a sterile analysis, but we do want to take our time and go into each one and examine the smaller parts of this whole because it is love, but uh, there are smaller parts that make it up so we can understand it. And uh, obviously, to understand it, then we want to apply it to our lives. And uh, we mentioned last week, uh, this is not just for gaining knowledge, but it's to put practice into each one of our lives. It's not We're not picking on one person or a group of people or... Uh, we're picking on every one of us as we look at this. It is a high standard. Uh, so high that we can't do it. With Christ, we can, as we are being conformed in the image of Him, we can do these things through the Spirit. But these words are action words. In the Greek, in the original language, they are action words, not just adjectives as you have in the English uh, they're not feeling words. There's not that. It's not that. It's not emotional. But they are action words. It's, it's really not what love is, but it is what love does. And so that's what we're going to look at as we go through here. Augustine had this great quote: "What does love look like? Well, it has the hands to help others. It has the feet to hasten to the poor and the needy." It has the eyes to see misery and want. And it has the ears to hear the sights and sorrows of men. That is what love looks like. As Augustine quotes there. Love is uh, not defined as feelings, as we see there. It's not defined as some kind of abstract, uh, some kind of attitude, but it's talking about actions. Putting it into real action. And so when you take it that way, I think we have to see this. This is a very challenging passage. Uh, for me, it is too awesome indeed when we realize the depth of this. And as you read it, you go, that's really nice. And we talked about it last week, how flowery this is and how beautiful it is to have on plaques and bumper stickers or whatever. Uh, but at the same time, when you really see what it looks like, it's like walking through a minefield. I mean... Each one of these is getting ready to blow off right in our face because it's going to show how far short we are on every one of these. We might think, hey, I'm pretty well there on all of these. 
You know, one or two have a little problem. Listen, we have not yet hardly begun on what this is uh, about. It's so demanding. We come up so short. Jesus is the one who fulfills every one of these. This is a portrait of Jesus Christ. If you want to see what Jesus looks like, you don't have to paint a picture and hang it on the wall. You can look at this right here and see Christ. He's the only one that can fulfill it. We could take and substitute His name in the place of the word love and it would all work out perfectly. Jesus suffers long. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not parade Himself. Jesus is not puffed up. Jesus does not behave rudely. Jesus does not seek His own. Jesus is not provoked. Jesus thinks no evil. Jesus does not rejoice in iniquity. Jesus rejoices in the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. That is Christ. Now, I dare not put my name there and say the same thing I just did. Dennis is patient. Dennis is long-suffering. Dennis is kind. Dennis does not envy. Because when it really gets down to the fact of the matter, those things do or don't happen. And so we uh, honestly have trouble putting our names there when we think of really what this means. We're on a journey, on a walk, our progress as pilgrims, right? We're trying to learn what love really is. And we know that we've been fed all of our lives from the other side of what love is, and it's further from the truth, the way that the world defines it, uh, they know less of love. As a matter of fact, they don't really know what it is unless they know Christ. If we turn on the television set, if we turn on the world's music, if we watch their movies through various other media, we will get a definition of what love is. And it's pretty sad when you really look at it because the outcome really is not too good. Uh, the world doesn't have much good news anyway. But our culture is consumed with what? Sex and self. And so when the culture puts those two together, really what they think of is it's to satisfy themselves. And that's what love is really all about. And it's all about me. It's all about my needs being met. It's all about wanting to have all my needs taken care of and satisfied. And as long as that comes true, then this love thing really works out good. And that is not love. That's what we not find here in this section at all. So really, we have to fight through that kind of thought that has been hammered into our minds and naturally it's already in the flesh of uh, really what love is. And we know that Christ, who is love, came in here to this earth, this earth that is so putrid and so corrupt with mankind's sin, and He became sin for us. He took on our sin. And I think that is the supreme example of love, isn't it? That is the highest elevation of what love is. When we look at that, we recognize that is good news. Because that's how my that's how my sin got taken away as he took it and put it on himself. Now, as we study and as we read, we say, Well, what's the context here? And the context, first of all, is Paul is correcting and rebuking 
all of the problems that he is, has been brought to the attention of uh, in the Corinthian church, they needed to be shown that love is not what they were doing. Uh, love was definitely coming up short there. Well, I don't think it was really present at the church of Corinth. And Paul was so concerned with what was going on in that church, their lack of love, and he wants them to know it's absolutely essential to not only know what love is, but to practice that in your own lives. With all the gifts that they had, all the knowledge that they had in there in Corinth, and yet they were not practicing this very thing. Matter of fact, as we looked at it last week, they were like what? Banging gongs and cymbals. And you guys remember that you probably don't remember anything we talked about, but whenever we had the cymbals ringing out loudly last week, we remember that, don't we? And if we have not love, that's really all we are as we go about in our daily lives. We're, we're just clanging cymbals, banging gongs. Without love, we, uh, we are nothing. We're a zero. We're less than zero. So, verses 4 through 7, love... It's like a light. It's, it's light that comes in, and I've defined this as gifts. Now I'm going to take love, and which is the supreme gift anyway. It's like a light that hits a prism and then scatters out into 15 various colors. Or think of the diamond, and it hits that, and all of a sudden you're seeing all of these different colors, all the colors of the spectrum. And a rainbow comes out, and it's all action. And that's what we get as soon as we finish verse 3, boom, we hit the diamond and there the light just spreads out. And we see this tremendous idea of what love is. And we'll look at Christ and then we'll say, this is what we want to be as we continue our walk in Christ. So, we're going to take the first one. And it says, love love suffers long. Or love is long-suffering. Or love is... Patient. Love is patient. Macrothumeo. How many have heard of that Greek word? I like that word. You guys have all heard it, right? Macro, big, long, thumeo, dealing with um, uh, tempered, uh, or maybe you can think of a long fuse. That's the idea there. Uh, or it's like bursting into flame. Love does not burst into flame. Uh, it's patient. Love um, deals with being patient. And we're not talking circumstances here. It's one thing to be patient with the circumstances you go through, and that's hard enough. But it's another thing to be patient with PPL. People. <laughs> I said that. It's kind of Facebook. That's what you see, and I had to ask somebody, what, what's PPL? You don't put a question mark. Silly me. They said, people. Oh, okay. I'm trying to learn all these abbreviations. But anyway, love is being patient with people. Sometimes we do okay. Sometimes we don't do so okay. Sometimes we just do absolutely terrible. And he's talking about all kinds of people here. So love just doesn't burst out in a flame and boom, just like dynamite goes off when we are wronged. And we can be in the right. We can be absolutely, perfectly right on this and somebody has wronged us. And what is the first reaction? To get back. 
That is always the thing we want to do. We want to get back at that person. That's the flesh. And that's what we have to have the Spirit to rule over. Hey, we're all this way. Sometimes we don't have that patience, and I know everybody here somewhere along their line has prayed for patience, and then when you found out what it took, you stopped praying for patience, (laughs) right? Because God will give you something to learn where you can have patience. And we've all been there. And we all still work with that. But, you know, really, uh, honestly, if you have the Holy Spirit, you actually have patience. It's just that you haven't worked it out yet. You haven't bloomed it yet. Because it says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. And you'll notice the first word it starts off with, love, right? The fruit of the Spirit. But anyway, this is something really different that Paul is saying to the Corinthians. This is incredibly different than uh, what your normal Greek person would be thinking of. They would not want to be patient. Matter of fact, it was considered to be weak if you were patient with people. Can you believe that? In the Roman world, in the Greek world, it was always the opposite, it seemed like, to what we have here. The, to the Greek, it was a virtue. Aristotle, the Greek philosopher, said it was a virtue to strike back at the slightest hurt. That's a virtue. Oh man, just wait. I'm going to get you back. Right? We're thinking. Revenge. That was considered to be a strong person who would be able to use that revenge. And Paul says, no. Love is macrothumio. Macro. Macro. Hmm. Big, long, long patience, long suffering. It means to be wronged over and maybe even over and maybe even over and over again, and at the same time, not to retaliate because of that. It's not saying that we are to be doormats, we are to use wisdom, but it's saying when people wrong us, don't try to strike back at them. Uh, use God's wisdom on how you want to respond to them. Uh, hang on that for uh, a few seconds or minutes, uh, maybe days, maybe months sometimes, and pray about it. Try to figure out what, uh, how you're supposed to respond. Now, in Galatians 5.22, we said that um, this patience is a fruit of the Spirit. When Paul was ministering, we know that he went through terrible things uh, physically in chapter Six of Second Corinthians, verse four. He's talking about his ministry. But in all things, we commend ourselves as ministers or servants of God. And you know what he uses first of all in much patience or macrothumio. Was he patient with people? Yes, he was. Then he goes on, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings, by purity, by knowledge, by macrothumio, long-suffering, by kindness, and we'll see that word, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love. Oh, Paul is hammering on some of the same things. This was Paul's life. This was the people that ministered with him as he said, we. We commend ourselves because we did it with patience 
and he knows it was the Holy Spirit that did it, he's not boasting and bragging about himself or their ministry. He's saying it was God who worked through them that he was able to do that. Uh, God himself is patient with his people who he's going to come uh, in his second coming. He is patient in the day that he comes back. Um, uh, he, he knows that there are still people to be saved. And so he's patient with those people as they hate him and despise him. But yet his patience is long-suffering. It's been thousands of years now, hasn't it? Um, don't even have to turn to this one. Jesus is on the cross. And after insults, I think the thieves there on the cross also, and all the terrible things that has happened to him physically, and he says, what? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Extreme suffering that he went through, and there he is with his patience with them. There was a famous atheist by the name of Robert Ingersoll. Has anybody ever heard of Robert Ingersoll? Uh, he went and spoke, gave lectures, and in the middle of his lectures, he would stop. And just to prove that there was no God, as he was an atheist, he said, I will give God five minutes to strike me for all the things that I have said against him. I will give him five minutes to drop me dead. And so he would stop and wait five minutes. Now, I'm not going to do five minutes here. You know what happened at the end of the five minutes to Robert Ingersoll? Nothing. He was still standing. God didn't wipe him out. And he said, there, that's a fact that God is dead. I'm not dead. There's no such thing as God. He doesn't exist. And so there was some man that thought of this. Did he think he could exhaust God's patience in five minutes? <laughs> God is patient for thousands of years, isn't He? For as long as man has been here. So, anyway, that's what uh, atheists think of God. But uh, He doesn't wipe them out immediately, does He? Abraham Lincoln was a very patient man. Just to illustrate that, we'll take up. There was a man by the name of Stanton, Edwin Stanton. He called Abraham Lincoln the original gorilla. Now, he was a political enemy of Abraham Lincoln. And so, you know, Abraham Lincoln would have the debates going on, and Stanton would just give him all sorts of hard times. And then there was one man that he said I, he was going to be taking a trip all the way to Africa, and he wanted to see the gorillas there. Well, Stanton says, you don't have to go all the way to Africa when you can find one in Springfield, Illinois. And so it went on. Those jabs that he had at Lincoln. Lincoln was elected as President of the United States. You know what Abraham Lincoln did with this man? Boy, he had the power. He could do something with him, couldn't he? You know, he took Stanton and he put him on um, his staff and put him as the Secretary of War. People ask, why are you putting him in on your staff? And he said, because he's the best man for the job. He simply hired him because he was the best man. Well, when Lincoln was assassinated, 
And he was in state, he was in the coffin, and Stanton uh, was there. And as he looked into the coffin, he said, There lies the greatest ruler that mankind has ever seen. He had his heart broken because of Abraham Lincoln's patience, his long-suffering spirit that he had. Love was patient, and it won out, didn't it? took a while, but it does pay off. Jesus said, love forgives how much? Seventy times seven. On and on and on and on and on and on. We are to be patient. That is difficult. And as a matter of fact, that is impossible. How can I do that when people have treated me wrong over and over and over again? Love. Love is patient. Through the power of God, you can be that way. The next word is kind. Love is kind. Crestuamai. And it means to be useful, to be serving, to be very gracious. Long-suffering says this, I will take anything that comes from my enemies. I can take it. I'm strong in the Lord. Kindness then comes along and says, I will give anything my enemy needs. Is that natural? Something is wrong with that kind of guy. Do you think that was the idea that the Greek philosophers had about kindness? That's ridiculous. Jesus made a statement about love your enemies. Ouch. That's really hard to do. And here we go. Face to face, we're looking at what love really is. And of course, we have to look at Christ, don't we? Kindness says, I'll give anything. I will do deeds for one, even my enemies. I will react with goodness whenever I'm treated wrongly. I'll not only be patient, but I'll even be good. I'll be kind. Kindness looks for ways to be constructive. That's not always dealing with enemies. It's dealing with your brothers and sisters too. But this kind of love in Corinth was absent, wasn't it? They weren't very kind there. Can you imagine if they would have used patience and kindness in that church, how that would have shown before all of the city of Corinth had they been that way at that time? What kind of influence would they have made them? Romans 2.4 This is God's kindness. Again, it kind of goes with His patience. In Romans 2.4 He says, Or do you despise the riches of His goodness? Or His kindness? Do you despise the riches? We're talking not just some kindness, but we're talking about the richness, overabundance of goodness or kindness, forbearance, and long-suffering. There's our macrothumio. Not knowing that the goodness or the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Did you know that you didn't want to repent when you did repent? Did you know that it was God's goodness or kindness that led you to repent for salvation? What a kind God. And He came into that hard heart and broke it up, didn't He? Wow, what a kind God. Look in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. This is what God looks like, isn't it? Totally opposite of the way that natural mankind is. 
Titus 3, 4. But when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared, whenever His kindness appeared before us, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy... He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That having been justified by His grace, we should should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You were hateful, full of malice, as it says in those other verses, foolish, disobedient, deceived, Uh, being led with pleasures, hating one another, and the kindness of God came in, the love of God and His mercy, and He just woke you up, regenerated you, and made you one of His. When naturally you didn't want to love Him, and He comes in with that kind of love. Are you astounded by that by every day? And every day, that's amazing. That is so kind. Matthew 11.30 Jesus says something. He shows how gentle He is. Matthew 11.30 says this. Verse 29 says, Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me. Here's your education. Education, the school of Christ. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now look at this in verse 30. For My yoke is easy... A burden is light. You know what the word for easy is? You don't have to really think too hard here. Kind. My yoke is kindness. He says that, listen, you come with me and I'm going to show you kindness. Um... He had just been talking about the rejection of Chorism, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. And then he extends an invitation and says, But you come with me. I'm going to show you kindness. I am humble, Jesus is saying. The first place to practice kindness is in the home. Everything always goes back there. Try it. we, we we try it with our spouses or we try it with the kids or the kids do it with the parents but as the, as the parents teach that kindness um, or when people hurt you repay them with kindness that sounds kind of scriptural doesn't it? When they hurt you you give them kindness you'll blow them away every time. So that's really what we want to ask ourselves how can I be kind here? That's incredible. It's impossible, isn't it? The flesh doesn't want to do it. Never. But remember, the Spirit hates the flesh. The flesh hates the Spirit. Galatians talks about that, doesn't it? Next one is love is not jealous. Love is not jealous. Zelao. That means a strong desire. It means to be fervent. It means to be full of zeal. A lot of zeal. Zealous. It actually means in the literal Greek to boil. Zelao. And he says here to not be zelao. There's two kinds of jealousy. They're both really bad. Matter of fact, they're bad to the bone. They, I mean, it's rotten. 
when you really think about what jealousy is, and we've all been jealous. Somewhere along the line, we've all been that way. We might still be. We might have a tendency to, to do it. One of them says this. Man, I wish I had that. We see our neighbor. We see our friend. We see the guy across the street. Got a brand new car. Oh, man, I wish I really had that. I really do. I really like that. I, I want it. I wish that was mine. Oh, I wish I had that. You know, you think about it. Oh, man, I, God, I, have, I want that. But there's a second step to this, and this is where it really gets ugly. Somebody has something new or something that you've discovered they have. You don't really care if you have it or not, but you hate it because they have it. You remember as kids, somebody would have a toy? You'd really care less about that toy. But you see them playing with it and they're having so much fun and everything and all of a sudden you're wishing that you'd love to just take it and then some kids just take it and you know, they break it, right? But we're, just, we're just talking about the natural flesh. That's, that's the way that we're, we're born that way. Kid gets a new toy and we don't want him to have it. So it's easy to be jealous, isn't it? Um, when somebody is successful in something, we kind of hate it whenever they're successful because they don't really deserve it. Or it might even affect you whenever somebody has been made something over that. I remember whenever I played basketball back in the junior high and, and the high school days, and basically in high school, but even in junior high, you know, sometimes there would always be some kid that. Um, would be right about the same equal with you and uh, they're the sixth man and you're the fifth man on the team and sometimes they substitute for you and then they go in and they start scoring a bunch of points and you don't get put back in the game and all of a sudden you start hoping that maybe he starts doing really bad. You know, it's on your team but you want him to do bad where you can get back in. And matter of fact, you start thinking, man, if he just maybe twists an ankle or something, I'd go back in. Just anything. I hated it whenever somebody took my spot. That's my spot and he got it. And that's jealousy. That's that's envying. And that's sinfully low. I mean, that's terrible. We don't want other people to succeed. I'm not succeeding so I don't want them to succeed. I think we all understand this. We, we've been there. We battle it. Look in James chapter 3, verse 14 through 16. And if some of this is hitting home too much, I'm sure that you guys won't be back next week. Please bear with me, because it says, love bears all things. (laughs) Are you patient with me? (laughs) I'm just bringing forth the news. I I didn't write this. It's right here. Right? This is God speaking to us. We should be convicted by God's Word. We should, because we need to be conformed more and more. We We don't have it all together yet, do we? If there's somebody here that has it all together, I want to know because I want to... Whatever, whatever you did to get there, man, get me there. <laughs> well, it's going to take a lifetime. James 3.14, but you... James wrote this. <laughs> you know, this is James, uh, the half-brother of our Lord. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom, this kind of wisdom, that's not real wisdom, does not descend from above, but is earthly, it's sensual. Matter of fact, it's demonic. Oh, James. 
For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Every evil thing. That's self-seeking. Did you see the word envy there? For where envy is and exists, there's confusion. And every, everything evil, and it's coming not only from the flesh and, and the world, the sensual, the, the demonic. You get your enemies right there in verse 15 at the end. The earthly, the sensual, and demonic. We battle those all the time. And so we want to use not the world's wisdom, but to use God's wisdom and His love and not to seek for ourselves our own self-satisfaction and envy. So, you know what? That's pretty bitter, isn't it? Pretty bitter. If you have bitter envy, bitter envy. How about in 1 Kings? Let's go to the Old Testament. We haven't been there today, have we? 1 Kings chapter 3. And this is dealing with Solomon, who is granted wisdom by God. He gets to put it on display. Because there are two women that are going to come to Solomon and he's going to be able to solve their problems. Let's look at this, starting in verse 16. We'll do the whole story here. Now, two women who were harlots came to the king and stood before him. And one woman said, Oh, my Lord, this woman and I dwell in the same house, and I gave birth while she was in the house. Then it happened the third day after I had given birth, three days old, this baby is, that this woman also gave birth, and we were together. No one was with us in the house except the two of us in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. So she arose in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while your maidservant slept and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead child in my bosom. And when I rose in the morning to nurse my son, there he was, dead. But when I had examined him in the morning, indeed, he was not my son whom I had born. Then the other woman said, No, but the living one is my son, and the dead one is your son. And the first woman said, No, but the dead one is your son, and the living one is my son. How are they going to get this figured out? Then they spoke this before the king. And the king said, Here's wise song. The one says, This is my son who lives, and your son is the dead one. And the other says, No, but your son is the dead one, and my son is the living one. Then the king said, Bring me a sword. So they brought a sword before the king, and the king said, Divide the living child in two, and give half to one and half to the other. Wow, that's what you say, Solomon? He knows what to do with it, so doesn't he? Then the woman whose son was living spoke to the king, for she yearned with compassion for her son. And she said, O my Lord, give her the living child, and by no means kill him. But the other said, Let him be neither mine nor yours, but divide him. So the king answered and said, Give the first woman the living child, and by no means kill him. She is his mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had rendered. And they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. The real mother was willing to 
give up the child so he would remain living while the other one went to the lowest point of saying kill him and let neither one of us have him then. Right? That is the kind of envy that is so sinful. That is wicked, isn't it? It would go that far. In Corinth, there was a lot of jealousy. Even Paul mentioned that there were some preaching Christ. And they, they saw the success that Christ, uh, Paul had. And so therefore, they wanted all that attention. So they started preaching and they started demeaning Paul. And they were starting to get some attention. And Paul's in prison at that time at Philippi. And Paul says whether they do it with wrong attitude or not, Christ is still being preached. And they're preaching with envy and strife, but yet at the same time, Paul was not in envy of the attention they were getting. He said, the gospel's still going out. Okay? What an attitude. That's great, isn't it? He was practicing this not being jealous. So, in Corinth, what's going on? Showy gifts. They're showing these gifts off and taunting uh, other people with them. And people were envious of that. He says, you are coveting gifts. Matter of fact, if you go to chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, which we were at just a couple of weeks ago, 12 verse 31. He said, and he's asking them, hey, are all apostles, teachers, workers of miracles, speaking with tongues, interpreting that kind of thing? Verse 31, he says, and it looks like he's commanding something here, but you have to look at it in the Greek. He says, but earnestly desire the best gifts. Well, it could be in the Greek, you are desiring the best gifts. You are doing, the, you know, you shouldn't be desiring these, all these gifts. Whatever you have is what God has already given you. Here's what you're doing. You're desiring these showy gifts. And yet I show you a more excellent way. It makes more sense that way. I don't want to read into the text, but the Greek can be set up that way. Or it could be setting up earnestly desire the best gifts. And what are those gifts? Well, it's love. Uh, but you don't have to desire those particular gifts. God gives those to you. You don't have to pray for particular gifts. I don't really believe you do. They're there. Just discover what they are. Lord, help me to understand what my gift is. But if we want some kind of a gift that will be showy, that would uh, give attention to ourselves then that would be also the same problem here of being zealous. So I think he was probably saying, you are coveting certain gifts. And that would be with the context that's going on there. Anyway, not to press that. When we see somebody doing well, we should be glad for them. Matter of fact, we should be rejoicing with them. When somebody does better than I do, I, I should rejoice with them. Jealousy is so bad, it kills and we've seen what this one lady, this one lady wanted to do. She wanted to kill that baby. It wasn't hers anyway. So we need a lot of have it, right? That's that's that jealousy. Cain killed Abel because Abel offered a better sacrifice. He, he was jealous, wasn't he? Jealousy kills. That's how far it'll go. That's why I say it is bad to the bone. Envy destroys. Envy destroys the insides of a person whenever they envy. Green with envy. I wonder if it's rotten green. We have to admit 
We get jealous of others at times. It's simple. A loving person rejoices in the accomplishment of others. That's hard. So I, I never thought of myself as being jealous. Well, look deep down. Let God work that out because we have a tendency to do that. You see what I'm saying? You know what this is? This is like, as Alistair Begg refers to it, this is like a mirror. And this mirror reflects right back to us who we really are. And when you see that inside, the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? We want the Lord to continually change that heart, don't we? In the process of And yes, we can still practice this of not being jealous. The next one is love does not brag. To talk in a conceited way. In an arrogant way. Uh, actually, in the literal Greek, it means a windbag. <laughs> Does that make sense? Love is not a windbag. Hot air. It's hot air that comes out of the mouth of a proud person. Conceited. It's actually the speech of pride. He says, hey, listen, love is not a windbag. Love is not showing off at the mouth and shooting off and and bringing out all these great words about yourself. Oh, look at me. Look at my wonderful accomplishments. Look at what I've done. I've done this. I've done that. Oh, man, they'll just keep going on and on and on. They brag and they brag and they boast. And you know what? People do not like to listen. I don't know of anybody that loves to hear somebody brag about themselves. And yet, they get around a crowd and they get more people and all of a sudden, it seems like that story that they started with becomes even bigger and grander and say, wow, this guy's really something. You know, I mean, wow. He's, he's making up these things. And even if they be true, who cares? Who cares? People want to make themselves look better and better and higher. And they get to where they are looking over the other one and the other one is going, oh, wow, this guy is really something. I wish I had what he had. And now they start envying do you know what's happening there? You, you, you not only sinned when you've made yourself out to be something that you're really not, and the other person now is feeling bad because he doesn't have what you have, which you don't have, and now you've got some kind of a double sin happening. And we can remember all these things as being kids, growing up, and, you know, people are lifted up over certain things. This is the flip side of envying. You know what I mean? Bragging is designed to make someone else envy you. Where you have jealousy, you're envying somebody else. And then when you have, are bragging, you're, you're wanting somebody to um, be boasting about you. Uh, and uh, they want to be that way too. We want people to think highly of us, don't we? That is our flesh. We want people just to think that grand. We're the most wonderful person that's ever lived. You know what? I am so good, man. I hope people really see this. Now, I know you guys don't around saying that. But a lot of times it's easy to make people think that we're so good. Um, and when some guy gets telling a story how good he is, then you get another guy telling how much better he is. Look what he's done. And you get another guy, and he has to outdo that one. I mean, it just keeps going on and on. And you're talking about windbags. When men get together, that's what they do. 
They start blowing the wind out. It's hot air and it's so hot you can't stand it and you just have to walk away. This is just filling the room with hot air. And that's what happens. They're lying and everything else. And people want to run from it because they don't want to feel less than another guy. and It's it's so self-centered. It's sin. And you know what? The Corinthians, to put this in context, had this problem. I mean, they had knowledge. 1 Corinthians 8 says they had knowledge and it puffed up. They became so conceited. More than once do we see that in the Corinthians where they were puffed up. Man, they had knowledge. They had the gifts. I mean, they had everything. And they let people know about it. And uh, Paul says, oh, no, love, love doesn't brag. Uh, Look in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26. See an occasion where this happens. 14.6 But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues... Okay, this, this is the problem they have in Corinth. Basically, this is the problem. This is a showy gift. They were making a huge deal out of this. He says, okay, if I come to you speaking with tongues, languages, what's profit you... Well, how am I going to profit you? How is this going to be good for you? If I come to you, you don't speak that language. I'm speaking it. You don't understand what it is, but it's saying, hey, look what I got there. And the guy's going, wow, he's got that? What's going to profit? Unless I speak to you either by revelation, where God has given me some kind of revealing of truth, by knowledge, by prophesying, or explaining this out, or by teaching. So what is going to profit you if you're doing that? Nothing. It's not going to do anything for anybody. It's worthless. And when we get into chapter 14, I think we're going to find quite a fascinating uh, section of, of uh, rebuking that Paul gives. I wouldn't want to base this chapter on this particular gift and say, hey, we, we do it because of chapter 14 here. Uh, that is not what Paul saying. matter of fact, it is quite the opposite. So I wouldn't be bragging about chapter 14. It, it, it shows um, a, a total a misunderstanding of what Paul's bringing out there. Um, Jesus was very humble, laid his life down. In chapter 2 of Philippians 4 through 6, I think the epitome of humility as he gave himself up for us. And uh, he wasn't bragging uh, how great he was, even though he had the right didn't he? When um, Paul is saying, when you come together, everybody has a psalm, a teaching, a tongue. I read verse 6. If you look in verse 26, everybody was coming up with all these different things. How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation... Let all things be done for edification. I mean, this guy says, well, that guy over there did that one. Hey, look, I've got a, I've got a new teaching here that I received. Another guy stands up, hey, i got a song, listen to this, check this out. Another guy is standing up and doing a language, and another guy, hey, I can interpret, you know, and, and they're doing all these things, and it's totally out of whack, totally out of order, and it's not edifying the church, it's become such a joke, it's confusing. People that are not Christians are coming in there, and they're saying, what is going on here? This is a mess. And they walk out. And so, um, 
That is the idea of what was happening in Corinth. When we get to 14, we'll see that. The way to beat the problem is when we open our mouths, we should look for the opportunity to talk about Jesus Christ. I said, what am I going to talk about? You know, I don't get to talk about myself. Well, I think if we would think less of ourselves and think more of Christ, wouldn't it be great if everything that we talk about would be leading towards Christ? Is it okay to talk about other things? Yes, absolutely. But then we always gear it back to Christ or we're going to have the tendency of bringing ourselves in. We battle with that. Next one is love is not arrogant. We just talked about boasting. It sounds like the same thing. Well, it's the root of boasting. Boasting is using the mouth and the arrogance is an attitude that a person carries. This is even worse. But it's really showing what his mouth is going to show what's inside, right? What we speak. This is about being puffed up. Just like the Corinthians. Love does not cherish its accomplishments. I think sometimes, you know, we as um, as parents uh, in this world today, uh, it seems like they don't um, build the children up enough as a whole, and in some go to the extreme and do the other things. You know, they they put the kids up on such a high pedestal; it's almost like the parents worship them. And I mean, they are at every event that can possibly be, and uh, they can do everything. And or, or if even if they can't, the parent makes it out to be like they are. And and even if they're not that way, um, the parents talk them into so much that the the kids think that they're the greatest thing since sliced bread, as um, Alistair Begg put out. Uh, how great and wonderful I am. And we are to edify and build up our kids or build up uh, young Christians, let's say, too, as we disciple them. But there is a problem of where they can be so puffed up, they can become arrogant, and they actually believe what people tell them now, and they go around showing that they're the best thing that ever happened. You ever heard of fatheads? We blow them up. We've become puffed up. The heads are fat heads. And now it's like, I would say, there is nothing sometimes worse than hanging around a fat head. Has anybody, do you remember those kids? Or even adults? Hanging around the fat heads. Full of ego. Arrogance. It has a big head. But love has a big heart. Um, let's look at the Corinthians just for a moment. First Corinthians chapter four, verse six. Now, these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, if you actually did, okay, great. Why do you boast as if you had not received it? Why are you boasting? It comes from God anyway, right? It's all from Him. So, if we do something that is an accomplishment, we can bring it right back and take it back to the Lord and say, that's all the Lord. 
because in me and myself I'm nothing I'm the vine Jesus says you are the branches we abide in him everything comes from him it's all glory to him isn't it look in verse 10 oh verse 8 you are already full look at, look at Paul's language here you are already rich I have exclamation points on this this is what my Bible has you have reigned as kings without us and indeed I can wish you did reign that we also might reign with you Wow, they were kings. Look how far they'd gone up. Paul had come in there teaching them, and then when he heard what all was going on, he's saying, my goodness, you guys are just full. You're rich, you're kings. Aren't you the best thing ever that mankind has ever had? And he comes in with that kind of thought. Uh, keep reading down there to verse 10. It says, we are fools for Christ's sake, Paul and his men, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but oh, you're so strong. You're distinguished, but we're dishonored. Wow. Look at what they had become. This is the natural tendency of man. Verse 18. Now some are puffed up, fatheads, as though I were not coming to you. Wow. Paul. Chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. You know some things that they were bragging about? Look at this about the sexual immorality that was going on in the church. It is actually reported. He says, I'm not kidding you here. It's actually reported to me that there is sexual immorality among you. And such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles. He says, this is worse. I mean, they see this as terrible. That a man has his father's wife and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that and who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. You're not even really concerned about it. You're so puffed up with your pride. Wow. And of course, we can look in Proverbs and take um, a lot of time to go through that. But Proverbs 16:18, Pride goeth before destruction or the fall of man. Pride and arrogance, God hates. All those Proverbs listings up there, 8.13, 11.2, 16.18. William Carey. Anybody heard of William Carey, the great missionary? He was a missionary to India. It took him a while to be able to get through to the people there. He was there for years. It didn't seem like there was any success. He translated the Bible there into 34 different dialects. You're talking a man who was very humble. Much success came through his ministry because of the translations that he was made to um, the people. One time he was at uh, a gathering and they were bringing, William Carey was there and a lot of other people. One man was probably jealous of him, didn't like William Carey, made fun of him right there in public because he came up to him. Carrie, he said, uh, Oh, you're a shoemaker, aren't you? You're a shoemaker. Uh, shoemaker is way, way, way down. Oh, I can't bend down the floor. That's how low a shoemaker is. And Carrie replied, No. I'm a shoe mender. You know what that means? Lower. I'm not a shoemaker. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a shoe mender. He didn't even make the shoes. He only fixed them. And that's what he said. 
love never shows off. My, what um, a man of God, William Carey. One more. My, that's only five of them. So what five we've gone through today? That's terrible. Excuse me. <laughs> I thought I'd go a little bit further, but we're not going to be able to go much further. Uh, I'll do one more. <laughs> I think uh, as I was listening to uh, it was Alistair Begg on this, he did five and he said the same thing. He says, oh, I only did five. I can't believe I only did five. Uh, he says, I'm doing terrible. Uh, and then he proceeded to do two more, but very quickly. <laughs> Does not act unbecomingly. Love does not act unbecomingly. Rude. Love doesn't act rudely. Poor manners. I will do what I want. I don't care what people think. I don't care how it affects them. We all know people who like to uh, maybe smack at the table, for instance. And I'm just, you know, they don't, they don't know it. And then somebody tells them about it. Oh, you ever been told you're, you smack? You don't even know you smack. But let's say you smack and you know you smack and you want to continue on because you want to irritate the other person. <laughs> I'm getting into something really ticky-tacky here, right? But this shows you that sometimes we know what can irritate the other person, so we do it just to irritate him. And that's poor manners. That's acting rudely. We should think about the better of that other person and their happiness is much more than our happiness. A couple got married. And they got an annulment on the basis of the fact that he was rude to his wife. There was, this is a real story. Okay, It's the strangest thing you would ever hear. You know what it was? Okay. This woman, the, the wife, went to court and she claimed that her husband was so crude and rude. She said he burps all the time. So he ever does. He burps. And he said, oh, come on, this is a joke, right? I mean, she went to court to get an annulment for this? Now, it's not a joke. This actually happened. The judge said, and this is, John MacArthur spoke about this, so if you've heard this story before, it might be familiar. MacArthur knew him. The judge actually granted an annulment on this issue of the wife saying that because he burped, I don't want to get this marriage annulled. And the judge said, well, it's apparent the man did not love the woman or he would have been more considerate and stopped burping all the time. So she actually got an annulment. Uh, and, and now I know a lot of you are saying, oh, man. And that's, that's really way out. Uh, there it is. That happened. Well, I can imagine people who would want to maybe try to get a divorce and they start burping. Can you imagine that? Uh, real story. 1 Corinthians 11.21 The Corinthians, what were they doing? Well, I don't know if they were burping at the Lord's Supper, but I'll tell you one thing they were doing. They were getting drunk. That's worse. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. They were bringing their food there, and each one has his own supper ahead of the others. They were eating it, and then when the poorer people came that didn't have anything to eat, they had already eaten it up and didn't share it with them. A love feast. Love thinks of other people over themselves. It doesn't want to be rude. One more. Love does not seek its own. And the reason I do this one, this is going to be quickly, because 
This is the key to all of this. Love always thinks of others. Does not seek its own. You could cure selfishness. If you could do that, if you could really cure selfishness, you know what would happen? You would just have replanted the Garden of Eden. I didn't say that. Linsky said that. We'd go back before the fall. That's the whole problem. We are selfish. We're thinking of selves. The Corinthians were selfish. Edification for their own. Jesus came to be served. No, He didn't. He came to serve, didn't He? He did not come to be served. And that's what we want. We want people to serve us. No, He came to serve us. And He gave Himself as a ransom for us. The whole idea of love is selflessness. That's a dying to self. And I know we all have this trouble. And it may not be outward and front wise. You may not even know it, but that's our problem. We have to die to self. And that is an ongoing thing and it will not be cured. Thank the Lord for the cross, all that it means, the power of the Holy Spirit there, but we are still dying to ourselves. Forget yourself. Take up the cross. Follow me. It's a lifelong thing. Dying to selves. We should want the good of others not for our own selves. That goes against the grain, doesn't it? That looking out for number one, boy, that's shot when you look at that. This is so totally opposite. You know what? We can see how each one of these could be really convicting as we dig into them deeper. The standard is extremely high. And when we're honest with ourselves, we see that Jesus was these. We put our trust in Him and His power to be like Him. God's working in us. There's a lot of room to develop yet. And so when we see it, we say, I want this fruit to start showing a little more. A little more. I want to be conformed to the image of Christ. Well, you are being conformed, but let it be seen even more. It's a process. As we yield to the Spirit, let Him control quite a mirror as we look into this 1 Corinthians 13 and we will uh, continue on with this next week as we trudge through this minefield and let the Lord work on us. Let's pray.